What's good, everybody? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by DistroKid. They are the go-to for digital music distribution and the easiest way for musicians to get your music onto Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube, and more. They offer unlimited uploads, and artists keep 100% of their earnings in stores 10 to 20 times faster than any other distributor. Fastest payouts. They help out with automatic splits, cover song clearance, and all kinds of other amazing tools and templates to help you get the most visibility for your releases. I dig this company and really appreciate their business model that offers more features than any other distributor at the most affordable price possible for solo musicians, bands, studio artists, DJs, and any other creators that are producing music in their home. And they also offer label services as well. They're distributing over a third of the world's digital music at this point. And the best part about DistroKid sponsoring the podcast is that they are offering Dan Cable Presents listeners 30% off your first year of membership, making their already affordable services even cheaper. Check out the link in the episode notes. I will also put it in my Instagram bio in the link tree. Click that link and it will give you 30% off your first year of service. Super stoked to have DistroKid sponsoring the podcast and can't thank them enough for their support of this thing. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Produce Row Cafe here in Portland, Oregon. This has become one of my favorite local hangs because they have free music every Wednesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. and Sunday afternoons 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. They are located in inner southeast Portland and not only do they offer free music on their their large patio setup, but they've also got a killer brunch menu from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. The French toast and the breakfast sandwich are lights out. And I can't really do much alcohol personally, but I love their Virgin Bloody Marys. And they've got some other mocktails for folks like me as well. And they're always rotating in new seasonal cocktails. So come through and check out what they've got on deck for fall and winter down there. The patio is now nice, covered, and heated and will be throughout the fall and winter. So come through and big thanks to Produce Row for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Cable Presents podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the program once again. If this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every Friday. And if you want to help support this thing in a free way, you can do so by clicking subscribe on iTunes, clicking write a review, giving the podcast five stars if you feel like it is deserving of so. And that will help propel this thing into the tops of those iTunes charts, which will give it more visibility on the national and international levels. Just a great way to help support the growth and sustainability of this thing. And really appreciate all the folks that have already taken the time to leave those reviews. If you're not listening on Apple, just hit like, follow, subscribe wherever you are listening from. Share the podcast with a friend. 
leave a comment somewhere on the social media, especially those Instagram posts. Those things are very helpful in fighting those algorithms that uh, we are always up against when when trying to get visibility for the the things that we want to share. So uh, that is all there. I will also put the link to my Spotify profile in the episode notes. I've been putting out a monthly playlist every first of the month. Those are coming out, and they're pretty spread out genre-wise and just kind of a... uh, a look into the music I'm listening to throughout the month and some songs that have uh, really stuck out to me. So those are there. As far as the podcast being on Spotify, it's been kind of hit or miss with what they've been uh, allowing to actually hit into the feed. So I know the last few episodes have not been available there, but it is available in so many other places. Obviously, you are listening to it right now, so you have figured it out. But either way... I appreciate the hell out of all the support for this thing. I am so pumped to get into episode 297 of this thing. I had the opportunity to get to chat with songwriter, composer, musician, and lead singer of the Juliana Theory, Brett Dieter. It was uh, very cool to get to chat with this dude and hear about the evolution of the Juliana theory and them being a part of the early emo pop punk movement of the late nineties and the early two thousands that definitely kind of took my world by storm being somebody that was in high school around that time. It was, uh, it was such a big deal, especially in the suburban neighborhoods that I grew up with. And, and Brett and I definitely touch on that a bit throughout the conversation. Um, I just thought he had such a cool analysis of how all of that went down. And I loved talking to him about the scene and his days playing in Zayo early on and what he's been up to as of late with his composing work for film. He's really immersed himself in that world over the last few years and to hear about how that's kind of shifted his writing perspective and just his will to want to keep pushing himself in new directions and learn is super inspiring and to get to hear about a dude who has made his career in music for you know over 25 years now is uh, something that is really special so I'm super stoked to share this chat with Brett big thanks to him for for coming on the show and, and giving me quite a bit of his time to to run through a lot of this with me and uh if you're a fan of this type of music and bands related to this scene last summer i got to chat with ben jorgensen of armor for sleep so definitely check that one out as well links for brett and the juliana theory will be in the episode notes so you can keep up with them juliana theory has a bunch of merch on their site right now so definitely check that out if you are a fan hit me with your emails dancablepresents at gmail.com. Love to hear your feedback on these episodes or artists you want to hear on the cast, music you're listening to, all of the above. Uh, Life advice, sure, we can do it. Let's go for it. Uh, iTunes reviews, again, are the best way to help help support this thing in a free way. And uh, definitely check out the Patreon. That link is in the episode notes. Been doing this uh, monthly mom chat that uh, I'm trying to get established. Just hanging out with mom, talking about different things. There'll be a new one of those up very shortly, and that's on the the $5 tier 
of the Patreon. You'll get a chat with my mother and I every month. We always have these these great talks, and she's always so open and vulnerable on the mics, which is awesome. So check out the Patreon if you want to hear more from me. And check out some free music over at Produce Row Cafe here in Portland, Oregon. If you are local to the area, you can catch the Jeff Chilton Trio coming up over there. First Thursday of every month, Jeff Chilton Trio is over there. And then Sundays, there's always a DJ there. A lot of them spinning vinyl. So check out music at Produce Row, noon to 2 on Sundays and Thursday nights from 6 p.m., to 8 p.m. All the links for the sponsors will be in the episode notes as well, so you can keep up with all of these fine folks who continue to support the podcast. Um, big shout out to Distro Kid. This is uh, we've hit one year now of them supporting the show, and that means uh, that means so much to me that they they just keep uh, showing love for this thing and and find some value in what I'm doing. So thank you to Distro Kid. If you're a musician out there. DistroKid, man, they are the uh, the cheapest way to get all of your music where it needs to be. So it has the most visibility, and they've got so many incredible tools to to help you uh, get your music in different places and and rolling out your releases and whatnot. So uh, definitely check out DistroKid, and we are going to get into episode two hundred and ninety seven. We're gonna kick things off with one of my favorite. Juliana Theory tracks from their 2000 record Emotion is Dead this is If I Told You This Was Killing Me Would You Stop let's do the damn thing watch your mouth hold your tongue boy because you're running out of breath running out of time before every careless word that you utter when is you into it then brett if you're ready to do so awesome man i'm excited to talk to you and get into the juliana theory stuff as well as all of the the film composing and scoring that you've been doing the last several years but to get things started um i just wanted to maybe take it back to the beginning of your music journey and and find out 
what your early exposure to playing music was or what you remember maybe about falling in love with music and what hooked you in? I think I probably just loved music from day one. If I remember my parents telling me that before I was born, they would sing to me in the womb like as a like on a daily basis and then when i was really young my dad sang in this um like in like a gospel group with a bunch of singers and i remember going to some of the rehearsals and being like really pumped and it's one of my earliest memories is is going and seeing them like singing and like just being excited about it so i think I can't remember any point in my life where I didn't just instinctively love music. And, you know, I I just remember like, I remember stories of like first grade, I told my teacher that I wrote a song and asked if I could sing it in front of the class. And she was like, sure. And and I got up in front of the class and sang the song. And then it went so good that, that I did, I asked her the next day, I wrote another song and she's like, yeah, you can sing it. Same thing the next day. I was like, hey, I wrote a song. Can I sing it in front of the class? She let me go up. And the fourth day I asked, she's like, okay, that's enough, Brett. So <laughs> I feel like it's been, I can't I can't remember a time where I didn't just instinctively love music. Yeah. And you were super comfortable in that space, obviously, even from a, a young kid of wanting to, to share your ideas with the, the world. You know, it's funny because I think that in a in a way something i believe very strongly is that as children we are all very very creative naturally mm-hmm. and i tend to think that a lot of things in our current society kind of take away a lot of that creativity whether that's accidentally or by design i'm not sure but you know i think that it just comes as like second nature when you're a kid to, to, you don't have fear really to get to kind of be taught to be afraid to show somebody your ideas or, or just to be afraid in general of a lot of things. So I think at that point, you, yeah, you don't, you don't even second guess it. And then later as life beats you up and as you quote unquote, learn different things, you, you sometimes then you end up being more hesitant maybe to share, I guess. Yeah, no, I I feel that. I think even now into my mid-30s, I'm kind of trying to cling to those things that I dug as a kid or brought out that, you know, that innocent spirit or creativity even, you know, there there's a there's a piece of that pod the this podcast in there of just like wanting to have my own radio show as a kid or, you know, trying to dip back into sports that I played heavily throughout my childhood that just kind of give me that that familiar feeling or tap into something no i think that's it's, i think that's super important and and crucial it's something that i think about all the time keeping in in touch with that your childhood self so did you find yourself also from a pretty young age trying to surround yourself with other people that were interested in playing music because i know you started playing in bands pretty early on I'm not sure if I consciously tried to do it, but a lot of my 
closest friends were people that played music or or deeply appreciated music. So I, I don't know if that's a chicken and egg situation where did one you know what did one influence the other. But yeah, I think that that's always just been the case too. Do you feel or sense from a, a pretty young age this is what you would try to do with your life and m- make music a part of it in whatever capacity you could, or was it not? Was that also not such a, a conscious decision? I remember when I when I was, you know, when I was really young, I had all the same aspirations. I feel like any kid from my era, you know, was like, "Oh, I'm going to be an Air Force pilot. I want to fly." fighter jets or I want to be a you know like some this is just always some random interesting job and then when I was like 12 I started playing ice hockey and I became completely obsessed with that and I was like oh I wish I could I wish I could play hockey professionally but I knew that there wasn't any chance that was going to happen because I wasn't good enough (laughs) and at that point nobody from where I was from had ever really become a professional (laughs) hockey player that's changed now but I think when I was around maybe 16 I was when I started my first like real proper band and at that exact like as soon as that started I remember telling my parents well this is what I want to do I just want to I just want to play music I I just want to like you know be in a band and go on tour and play shows and write songs and make records and I remember at first them being like yeah that's not a that's not realistic that's not gonna like you can't you can't how who do you even know that's done that and and slowly I think I think a lot of success in a lot of areas in life come from just being so stubborn that you don't accept no for an answer or being yeah. maybe dumb enough to want to torture yourself with um you know with with certain aspects of this career i guess but <laughs> yeah you just 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 said that's what i was going to do and i guess that's what happened was there anybody around you in your late teens that made you feel like that was something tangible? Did you know other people going on DIY tours or playing music around the country at all? No, I didn't. Not at 16. But what we had in, in Western Pennsylvania at that point in time, and I'm not even talking about Pittsburgh, which is the closest big city to where I'm from, but I lived like 40 minutes outside of Pittsburgh and there was a very very active local music community of underage like like all ages bands but like we're talking like you know 16 17 18 19 20 year old kids nobody was old enough to legally drink and there were a lot of bands that would play together all the time and it would be like you would have an industrial band and you would have a pop punk band and you would have a hardcore band and you would have a grunge band and you would have a a metal band and you'd have a pop band and they would all just be like we'd all play shows together and people would you know some bands might drive an hour to come to the show and you know sometimes you would go a little bit out of the way to go to trade shows with somebody else but it didn't no none of those bands none of us we weren't like we certainly weren't making any money from it and it wasn't like a career but I'm not sure, but it it just felt like 
there was a community aspect to it and it it was so DIY that it sort of felt like, you know, maybe there is some version of this that's achievable. You know, like I yeah. I, th- I think like the very the very first national show I ever saw, like the first band that wasn't a local band I ever saw was Fugazi and still one of my favorite bands that's of all a, time. That's a pretty good first show, Brett. <laughs> but yeah, so my first my first show is Fugazi and so and I met them, you know, after the show cuz I waited around to talk to them and that's like what you know, what more do you need to know about about doing doing something on your own and figuring out how to do it because <laughs> they operated completely outside of the system. They booked all their own shows. They owned their own record label. They didn't even take a crew they didn't even sell merchandise. They they did everything 100% in in house, and they operated completely outside the mainstream, but had a true fan base. And so I think, in a way, I didn't even know necessarily that I was getting an education in the idea of of a bit of like DIY ethics. Like I was almost so young, I didn't even understand that at the time. So right. I just see these local bands playing and they're putting on a show at this at this all ages club or they're putting on a show at this outside park and I'm like 15 and going with my friends. I'm like, oh, well, that's just what you do. And then I see Fugazi, you know, a couple months later and and they just show up with their own box truck and they're like, they set up the show. And so just was kind of like ingrained in my mind that you just, if you want to do this thing, you do it. You know, it didn't it didn't rely on having to wait for something bigger, a record label or whoever to necessarily come along and give you permission to do it, I guess. Yeah, it's cool that you uh, got to see that in action. And so that that uh, was communicated in some way, just because, you know, the, the pressures of society to grow up and, and get a job are obviously heavy at that time as well but i think when you're having those types of experiences you're having and doing it with your friends and experiencing the community it's also hard to experience that and then try to go back to the day job the next day or whatever you're trying to grind it out with totally it's cool it's cool to learn that you you played hockey man that's that's my that is my sport of choice and i i grew up playing ice hockey and i i still play hockey i love that that it's that to me it's funny because Hockey, when I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, it was just just starting to become a thing there. But because we had Mario Lemieux, and this is like kind of right before the Penguins won any Stanley Cups, and it felt also very related to punk rock and like DIY kind of thing. Because you know, I'm like, here I am, I'm playing on my high school's team, but we don't play anywhere near the school and every other team that plays for the school football team and the you know even like the golf team and everybody they're all they're all playing at the school or outside and we're yeah. playing at this you know rink that's nowhere near the school it's totally detached we're treated like fifth class citizens and we had this one day a week we'd wear our jersey to school if we had a game and i remember like i would wear my jersey and and it was almost like you like everybody on my team almost every hockey player was like a weird outcast half of us were musicians like half of the dudes like played in like metal bands or whatever and it, and it was just like this weird ragtag bunch of 
of misfits that totally did not fit the stereotype of jock although there might have been one or two amazing musicians or like amazing athletes on our on our team but for the most part we were all kind of like these weird outcasts and of course like you know hockey is just gigantic now western pennsylvania but it it felt so parallel to playing music at that point in time because it was like i wasn't cool or friends with anybody doing any like anything popular or whatever <laughs> anything that was like the cool thing to do and then playing hockey was as you, like at that point was just like the exact same thing but it was just yeah. like it was so fun and it's just something that i fell in love with absolutely man that was a, a similar experience growing up in southern california you know we didn't have some high school hockey team so it was either you played travel like club ice hockey and you knew a few people at your school that also played on the team and we were the you know the hockey weirdos like you're saying the kind of the outcast kids as far as the the athletes in some way and and even now like my whole rec hockey team is half of them are all portland based musicians or artists and there's a when I tell people I play ice hockey, they're they're just always very surprised. Still, too, there's this weird thing. It's it's uh it's it's interesting. Well, it's more. It's crazy too. Is it's way more non-mainstream here in Southern California. Like I say, when I started playing in Pittsburgh, nobody really cared there, but now it's huge there. But you know, Southern California, it's never gotten huge here it's like i remember going to one of the finals one of the was i forget what year was it might have been i want to say that it was 2012 and the kings were in the stanley cup finals and i went to one of the finals games and it was just hilarious because you know if, if it had been the lakers or something everybody would have been excited or the dodgers of course everybody would have cared but it's like it's like a king's game and so people are like what we're in the fine. We have a hockey team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for yes. sure, man. Yeah. Even growing up there, it's uh, in playing hockey. You know, it was pretty unheard of that a, a kid from Southern California would actually make the NHL. And now that's that's a little less rare as the the game has grown all over the place. But um, very cool to to know that you're you're a hockey lover, Brett, um, and that you grew up playing. But ditto, ditto. What do you remember about Juliana Theory? getting started well what i remember primarily about us getting started i think one of the most important things about us getting started was that it was supposed to be a joke side project band that our goal was to do a three song demo tape and play one show so we all had our quote-unquote real bands our like actual bands that were supposed to be the main thing we were doing and when Juliana Theory started one of the the main some of us tried different instruments that we hadn't, you know, played in the past. Like I had never been a I'd never been a singer for a band. I'd, I always played guitar and did like some backing vocals. And so I was in this band called Zeo that was like a metalcore band that that toured and, you know, kind of had a cult following. And that was kind of like at that point that was kind of like my main thing and at the same time we just started Juliana Theory as like this side project with some dudes that were in like some of the guys were in pop punk bands and then some of us were sort of more like hardcore kids or whatever and we thought oh let's get together and do this like fun indie emo pop 
project that's just really fun and we don't take it seriously and we'll just like put out a couple songs and then we'll go away. And yeah, I think there's like a theme there with us. It's usually when something starts out as a joke is when it ends up lasting or turning out good. So yeah, that spirit of just not taking something too seriously and and not worried about what the, the outcome is necessarily. Exactly. Yeah, man, I am very familiar with Juliana theory. I graduated high school in 2003. So I feel like that was amidst, you know, the huge blow up of, of pop punk and emo for that time and warp tours and, and all that stuff. So it's very cool to have the opportunity to, to chat with you as I know those Juliana theory records are kind of in that, that emo pop punk zeitgeist. But one of my favorite things that I learned about you in preparing to talk with you today was learning that you were playing in Zayo because that was a band I was also very familiar with. One of my childhood friends, that was one of his favorite bands. And I grew up in Corona, California. And I don't know if you ever played the Showcase Theater. Yes, Showcase. I had always heard about it and I would see like posters and, and like photos and I never got to play there because it was like, Zayo played there before I was in the band and they would always come back and be like, dude, we played the showcase theater with, it would be like, oh, Strife played and like Earth Crisis and like whatever it was, Unbroken play. And like you hear all these like amazing bands and I would always like see, like see all this stuff from there, you know, whether it was flyers or just literally photographs or whatever, VHS tapes. And I always wanted to play there and I never got to play there. But yes, that's that's like a legendary, a, a legendary place. Everybody came through. That was such a huge spot for the the tour circuit, and it was like the heart and soul. I felt like of of the that suburban city. You know, it was like the one cool piece of culture that it had. And and I worked at the pizza place next door, so I would go to shows a lot there. And uh, yeah, man. So Zayo was definitely something I was I was familiar with. Was that you? Did you play on Where Blood and Fire Bring Rest then? Yeah, yeah, I played on. Um, that's the only record that I played on. Um, but yeah, that was a it was a wild. That was a wild time because um, you know, originally, I I joined to replace Roy, the uh, original guitar player, and it was supposed to only be me being um, the only new guy that would have changed from the two records before Blood and Fire, which were all else failed in the splinter shards of birth of separation and i ended up joining and little by little over a period of like two months everybody quit except jesse the drummer and so we ended up filling the rest of the band with friends of mine from from my hometown and so kind of changed the band's geography and changed (laughs) the members like so much that yeah it just ended up like changing the whole sound of the band and changed like the whole trajectory of like what they became just through random circumstances you know i guess but that was that was a fun time did you go out and play all those crazy big cornerstone festivals and things like that then i only played one i only played one um one cornerstone with zeo um but it was wild it was really it was a crazy it was like a crazy show yeah i just remember all the I used to go to like a fair share of non-secular shows, but also a lot of Christian shows at Showcase. You know, there was a lot of uh, 
labels based there, like Face Down Records. I don't know if you remember any of those bands, but they kind of ran like, in that, that, like that same no circle. Was like Victim, right? And if I'm not mistaken, yeah, and like this band, The Deal, and then there was like I don't know, Officer Negative was probably one of the big ones at that time. But yeah, so definitely familiar with that that world, and I. I revisited where blood and fire bring rest last night and that record still rips. (laughs) Thank you. I I love that record. And it was a really magical time for me. That was like the first, you know, that was like the first time that I was ever really first time I got to record a a full length in a studio. And the first time I ever got to record where, you know, somebody else paid for it. So it was just like a really magical and and creative time and you know we went in there with a like such a different lineup and changed the sound so much that we just really had no idea if anybody was gonna like it but we just kind of made what we liked and fortunately it connected with people and and then you know Zayo's still going and and I think they're better than ever at this point and they're kind of just still like pushing the boundary they're still growing and changing their sound and still putting out really cool packaging like not long ago they did a Nintendo cartridge release and they just they're still really you know they're really creative and really active and they, they do a lot of fun stuff so I love those guys Was that type of music more in line with what everybody was kind of listening to within the the Juliana Theory crew at that time? No, no, only no, only me really. I was the really the only one that really liked um, really heavy stuff. Josh Fiedler was really into like he was a really big pop punk kid at at that time, and also was like, you know, just uh, how do I? We were a weird, yeah, we were a weird bunch. We had like, some of us were really into classic rock. We liked, we liked classic rock and we liked some progressive, like old weird prog rock. And then we all kind of had a, a soft spot for like radio pop rock kind of stuff. And then, you know, there was the, the like classic nineties alternative stuff that we all grew up on, like, you know, the Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana yeah. and stuff like that. And then we were obviously influenced by like you know the uh like emo bands before us from like sunny day real estate and texas is the reason and game face and stuff like that and you know it's just kind of all over the map but i was kind of the main one who really liked heavy stuff because i, I kind of always just did as since i was really young but it yeah in, in a sense it kind of gets i feel like only being able to play heavy music got really limiting and that's kind of like why I ended up like leaving Zayo because I just felt like I was doing both bands at the same time and I felt like Juliana Theory had more possibility in the fact that we could have a heavy song if we wanted to but then we could have an acoustic song if we wanted to and then we were like you know experimenting with keyboards and drum machines and things like that so it just felt like it it just felt like there was more freedom to explore different things but i always have a soft spot for 
like really heavy stuff. And did you uh, did you feel pretty comfortable slipping into the the front person role there? I think, yeah, I think it, it. The only thing that was weird at the beginning was going up on stage because the the two bands I had been in before. I always had a guitar and I might do some backing vocals, but I never was the main singer and I always had a guitar. So the the only thing that was a little weird at first was not having something to hide behind. And I remember I got this 50s looking Shure microphone and put it on a stand. And I was like, well, I have this. This is my one prop. And this is like the one thing I could sort of like hide behind this one thing. But in general, from like my bands I was in growing up when I was really young playing in that local scene you know we played so many shows where we'd have technical difficulties or a guitar string would break and there would be a nine minute lull and a 30 minute set or like so many things that we embarrassed ourselves and like so many times that I can remember being on stage where like we forget a part of a song or something breaks in a really bad way and nobody has the grace yet to know how to handle that and I felt like I'd already had like three, four years of like embarrassing myself, profession or not professionally, but embarrassing myself on stage. So it was like, it just didn't seem like that big of a deal to be like, oh, well, now I'll just sing because what else is there? Like, what what is there to lose at this point? Like, you, you know? Yeah, absolutely. When did the band start to pick up traction or like, was there this point where you were just playing to a few kids at shows and then all of a sudden you're playing in front of hundreds and seeing lines outside of the venue when you would arrive or did it not happen that quickly? It sort of did happen that quickly. There was, so our very first, we did a U.S. tour in 1999 that I booked myself. Um, I literally just called venues and called promoters that most of whom I had played shows with, with, um, with Zayo. So I sort of might've maybe met somebody there that I could call. And I remember on that tour, you know, we're kind of going out there and our first record has just come out, but nobody knows who we are. Nobody knows what it is. And I remember for instance, playing Memphis for the first time and, well, there were like 11 people there and I remember playing I remember playing Denton Texas on that tour and one there was one person who watched us play and he stood easily 60 feet from the stage so we were we played to absolutely nobody but this one guy who was like standing in the back totally aloof but then on that same tour we got to Southern California and there were like a couple hundred people at the show we're like, whoa, people know who we are. And then we, you know, we got to Sacramento and there was probably like 250 people there and just just to see us. And so it was this weird thing where we're like, okay, maybe this is sort of connecting. And I think we recorded our second record, Emotion is Dead, only about like a year at the most after our first record. And sometime around the time of, Emotion is Dead coming out or even maybe right before it came out there was just a shift and we just started noticing you know we'd get to a certain certain venues we were at a, a few months earlier that there were a couple people at or a decent crowd that just like you said we'd be like wait a second 
there's a huge line and it's an hour and a half before the show starts. What's going on? And and it happened so quickly that it was almost hard to sort of recognize because it's it's literally happening so quickly, but it was definitely happening for, you know, other bands that we were friends with and contemporaries too. So it was just this sort of thing that was just kind of a wave that was sort of catching, I guess. We're at the top of the world, you and I. We've got a lot of time, and it sure feels right. Cause you reached in your pocket and pulled out a pass. Since you can take me anywhere. Yeah, I was curious if you had any insight into like why you thought so many bands around that time had a similar success or at least for that window of time it seemed like you know a new band was kind of popping up every every day or you know there all those shows were usually stacked out with so many bands four or five bands on the lineup you were always being exposed to to new music but do you have any uh any insight on that or your your thoughts on why things were happening or, or even why people have such a, like a certain generation seems to have a pretty huge attachment to this era of, of pop punk and emo music. And I know, you know, your, your band was definitely at the, uh, the early beginnings of that, if not like a, a pioneer of that, that era of emo music. I can't say I know exactly why it happened i think there's i think there's a lot of reasons i think you know we kind of were at that age to where when i was really young i used to think oh yeah it would be so great to to be in a band and play music and go out on tour but all my favorite bands were like iron maiden and metallica and all these like technically proficient like amazing musicians and then all of a sudden Nirvana comes out and smells like teen spirit is everywhere. It's four chords. The The guitar solo is not some shredding solo. It's the same melody as the vocal played on guitar. You could be playing guitar for six months and you could play the song. And suddenly there's this whole world that opens up to where all of a sudden you don't have to be you don't have to be incredible to make, you know, to make rock music. And so it's like, then not long after Nirvana, Green Day comes out. Green Day is the same exact thing. It's three chords, four chords. And it's like, you, of course, they're great musicians, just like Nirvana was. But there's this simplicity that it, it appears to be really simple. And so a lot of those bands were only a few years before or not, you know, not that far away from, you know, you look at like, we're talking like early, early emo. It's like Sunny Day Real Estate was basically happening at almost the same time as Nirvana, if I'm not mistaken, and same record label. So there's sort of this synchronicity. So people my age were like, oh, wait a second. I grew up thinking I can't be in a band because I'm not good enough to play Motley Crue songs, but I, I could play this Nirvana song. So this is that one generation younger than that we all picked up guitars and there were so many of us that picked up guitars and i and i think 
you know, so many kids in in emo and pop punk like grew up on maybe a little bit more hardcore or a little bit more like DIY punk, like whether it was, you know, whether it was Fugazi or whether it was Jawbox or whether it was just any, you know, more slightly more left of center and not as poppy kind of stuff. But we all had that sort of DIY ethic. And then, you know, I remember it's very early on in the scene and one our our second show ever, this we played with this band that nobody nobody had heard of yet and they jumped on the show we were doing and literally they were like super small and they were called at the drive-in and they were <laughs> amazing and we played together for like 40 people and a couple months they came back to town and we played with them again and it was only maybe a year at most a year after that where we we heard oh at the drive-in just got signed to a major label and so that was the first band where everybody in the scene took note and felt like oh this is a shift this is like a quantum shift because there was there was this the outlier of jimmy world was already on a major label but they were like on a major label when nobody knew who they were and they were just yeah, somehow yeah. got signed to a major before anything and they were like this anomaly but but it was like all these other bands were either putting out their own records pressing their own seven inches or on really small diy labels and then maybe moving up to a little bit bigger indie label but that was the first time we had seen somebody get signed to a major and so it felt like that was this watershed moment where we noticed that people were like sort of paying attention and then at about the same time that at about the same time that i said a lot more people started coming to our shows all of a sudden people from big record labels started coming around and mm. somebody would introduce themselves oh i'm i'm so and so i'm from mca or i'm from you know whatever i'm from dreamworks or whatever it is and i think you know it's like there was there was limewire and there was Kazaa, and i remember not long after we signed to epic records we went in for a meeting and they were like, oh, do you know you've had 800,000 downloads in the last X amount of months? And we're like, what are you talking about? They're like, well, <laughs> you know, like on Kazaa and LimeWire. And we were like, you can track that? And they were like, oh yeah, yeah, we have we have like, we have all the internal stuff. We, we monitor this, we're paying attention to what's going on. And so first of all, we were blown away by that number because that seems so huge at the time to us. Yeah. And number two is just kind of like okay there's this thing it's probably happening organically it's the result of grunge it's the result of pop punk like being you know green day and whatever being big on mtv it's kind of like this next wave of that and then it's sort of happening organically and then once it started happening organically i assume that's when the labels and people that pay attention to this stuff are just starting to get their computer algorithms where they're figuring out what is happening and they're seeing oh this is a scene this is a thing we can you know we can commoditize this and make make you know more money off this and so then you start yeah having bands some of these bands are starting to show up on mtv or they're starting to have their songs and movies and 
you know it's like bigger bigger tours are starting to happen and so i i i don't uh, it feels like it was probably just rel- like natural and organic but it was also you know it's like lightning in a bottle you, there's just there's movements that happen and at the time you almost don't even realize that they're happening because you're you're in it and you don't really necessarily notice that it's um as you just don't necessarily notice it when you're inside it as much as when you can look back later and say oh yeah that was that was kind of a time that was a thing yeah man i don't know to me there's something about this style of music that just really represents the suburbs to me and the experience of growing up in the suburbs and just being that soundtrack i feel like maybe it it plays not that you can't be uh, a kid who's into pop punk and emo and that grew up in the city but it seems that uh a lot of people identify with the suburban upbringing and this this type of music and these shows happening in strip malls in little DIY spots and things like that. It has to be connected because you look at like you look at like the bands that come up in the city when you think of like cities so you think of like the Strokes and Interpol and people like that and it's just like it's 2 degrees cooler than anything that came out of like that came out of like at least my generation of of pop punk and emo there's just like i don't know if that's like the city is a little bit more detached and you know if, you, if you're a kid and you grow up like in a city you're just you just automatically have you lose your innocence earlier you have like a i feel like there's just a you're just automatically more detached and um just aloof but cooler i'm not i'm not even sure exactly yeah. how i can describe it but you know I, I have kids in my family that are grow up in cities and then i have kids in my family that are growing up in the country and there's a that are at a similar age and there's just a noticeable difference and so i think you're right there's the suburbs had a huge part in how this music came about and like how it was made and some of it's probably just as simple as being able to have a garage that you can practice in and being able to play in that garage because your neighbors weren't so close that they cared and there was easy it was easy to get rehearsal space but then it's like you know it's all the the social factors and all the like who knows it's it's probably so influential to it and and i'm sure that there are essays and books already explaining why the (laughs) why the you know the suburbs makes this type of thing but yeah that's definitely a big part of it yeah you just get hip to different shit i guess with your experience of of growing up like even moving up to portland oregon like 10 years ago i it feels like this is a place where that scene was never that huge. There's still always the couple venues that, that the bands would come through and, and still do tour two, but there doesn't seem to be uh, that big demand for it or that big of a community for it, you know? Totally. In uh, around the time that you all put the that love record out, you went on tour with something corporate and... Andrew McMahon is one of my favorite songwriters of all time. I was just wondering if you had any re- any memories of that particular tour or, uh, I don't know, much interactions with, 
with Andrew over the years or the the something corporate crew? Yeah, um, that was a great tour. We had a blast. Andrew's awesome. He's a great dude. We had a lot of fun with him um, and, you know, the whole band. That was a really fun, enjoyable time. You know, I just remember him every day. I remember that punk rock covered in stickers piano getting up on stage and it was like it was like i remember every day a tuner came to tune it in every single city and then every night he would light the thing on fire and he would like jump on it and like step on the keys or whatever and you're like yeah of course you need a, a tuner to come for this thing every day yeah but yeah. yeah it was like such a coming of age time in a way because i felt i feel like we were we were such kids but um but yeah um I love Andrew. I think he's a super I think he's a super talented dude and it's it's um you know it's exciting to me to see that he's continued to do stuff and you know he's he's had multiple projects with some really good friends of the Juliana theory some of our really good buddies from the early early touring days are Jay and Bob from Okay the band River City High who have gone on to play with Andrew in multiple things that he's done for years. Yeah. And so, yeah, I have a lot of fondness for him and, you know, what he does for sure. Yeah, it's funny. I just finished uh, listening to his book that he put out recently and he talks a lot about, you know, what it took to bring the piano out on tour and whatnot throughout the years and also just like the budget <laughs> that had to be set aside just so that they could do shit like that like come out and tune the piano every night or whatever yeah that's 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 real that's the real thing um <laughs> uh, also you you guys made that love record with jerry harrison from talking heads yes what was what was that experience like? Because you talk about somebody that's obviously been a part of some some hip records, and you know this dude from the Talking Heads making kind of more of a, a straight ahead rock record. What was uh, did, was he very enthusiastic about the the music that you guys were making at that time? He was actually really enthusiastic, and and you know I've never said this before, but I I I think in a way. I and or the band could make a way cooler record with Jerry now that utilizes Jerry more because it's a it was a strange fit at the time because if I'm being if I'm being honest and this is somewhat embarrassing I was not that familiar with the Talking Heads back then and I didn't listen to a lot of Talking Heads and we were really yeah. that was like the heaviest point of the band's career and like our most big guitar rock kind of stuff and so in a way we didn't really necessarily utilize Jerry to his to some of his biggest strengths and we didn't necessarily appreciate the magnitude of the talking heads as much as I do now um so in a way it was like I'm not saying that it was a weird fit, but I'm just saying like maybe we didn't get as much out of it as we should have. But Jerry was awesome. He was he had lots of excitement that he brought to everything. And you know, I remember in pre-production we would play him songs and when he would get really into something, he would do this 
funny dance that didn't really match the songs at all but we oh, we always call it the jerry dance and we we're like oh if jerry's doing the jerry dance and this then we know this is <laughs> then we know this is good um but you know it was a wild experience in general because i remember at one point in the in the recording process he was like oh i gotta leave and go to new york for three days because uh talking heads are getting inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame <laughs> so we lost him for a couple of days and he comes back and we watched the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony on TV the first time it airs, sitting next to Jerry. And it gets to it gets to like him going up to the mic and he's like, Well, they cut my speech, you know, for TV. Like that's they cut out <laughs> everything I said. But, you know, so it was like him he would tell stories every day about, you know, New York in the in the cbg like cbg's era and about you know the ramones and about you know he was he was in the modern lovers and he was telling us all these crazy stories about you know like knowing jean michael basquiat and like just crazy things that you're hearing and you know in a in a way it almost just didn't even it just didn't even feel real but he had truly lived a real you know a real crazy life already at that point and we just felt I just still felt so young and it was it was definitely it was definitely an interesting pairing but the whole you know the whole process of making that record was so different because our first record cost six thousand dollars to make and um our second record Emotion is Dead cost ten thousand dollars to make and then I think our budget on that one ended up I'm not sure when it was all said and done but it was you know somewhere in the range of like four hundred thousand dollars so if the fact of like oh your budget's 40 times more and does that mean that it's for the record's 40 times better no it (laughs) just means that like you know you're like spending all kinds of money that you probably don't need to spend on all kinds of things that actually don't really make a big difference in the long run but that was a really big learning experience for me too just learning like how many things you don't really actually need to do to like make yeah. something good so yeah and yeah man I, I think I would have been in the the same spot as you Brett at that point not really having much knowledge about the talking heads except for knowing the name and maybe one big song so I don't know that at that time of my life I would have been able to take advantage of you know his his kind of genius at that time or you know wanting to hear a bunch of david byrne stories or <laughs> things around that time but i would also imagine that was maybe somewhat helpful in in you guys not necessarily fanboying the whole time that you were there and just able to like make the record with the dude yeah that i that's for sure i mean there's things i wish i could go back and and do again because i remember you know were at one point I was there and I think it was maybe a different, maybe not exactly when we were recording, but I, I went back to the studio or something and they were mixing. I can't remember if it was stop making sense or remain in light, but they were mixing one of the talking heads records in surround at the studio that we did a lot of the work in. And I was there and like listening to it in surround and, you know, now with surround being a big part of what I do in, in movie stuff, et cetera. It, the, just the whole thing. Like I didn't really appreciate it at the time as much as, as I would now. 
Yeah. When did you start getting curious about the production side of things? Like when you were writing and recording those early Juliana Theory records, were you always hands-on in the process of mixing and engineering? Because I know that you did the Deadbeat, uh, uh, Sweet Heartbeat record. I didn't. I didn't do Deadbeat. I mean, I did a lot of like, I did a lot of engineering stuff on parts of it. Um, yeah. But I and you know just like co-produce stuff. But we still had a, a producer and engineer on that. Um, John Travis, who's awesome. But I think in general, what kind of happened was on our, so I bought like this digital, digital recorder, like this Roland digital eight track in maybe was it a 16 track really early on somewhere a little bit after understand this is a dream. And so we started recording demos for, emotion is dead on that thing and so i was doing the demos and kind of like learning about miking a drum kit and miking guitars and i bought like a sequencer and a keyboard and i started like sequencing drum machine stuff and that's sort of where all the programming on emotion is dead came from and very i was kind of like the only guy who did that stuff in the band and very synchronistically i would say when we went to the studio with our producer Barry Pointer to make Emotion is Dead, he was like, you know, I really want this record to be really good and I want to step it up from what we did last time. So I'm buying this I'm buying this thing that's that people are starting to use. I'm buying Pro Tools. And he had never made a record with Pro Tools and our first record was made on um like basically like ADAT kind of tape thing and so we recorded the basics for Motion is Dead that way. And then like two weeks into the record, Pro Tools and this computer like show up and none of us have any idea how to use it. Barry doesn't have any idea how to use it. And so I sit there over next to him and I watched the entire process. Everything he did, I just sat there and watched. And I kind of just, um, I would always be, I would always be the guy who was there for all the mixes of all our records. And I was always the guy who stayed for the entire process. And I just kind of like would always just kind of watch what people were doing. And maybe I would ask a question every once in a while. And then I remember not long after buying one of the earlier versions of Pro Tools that you could get with like the more like home studio kind of version. And I just kind of taught myself how to do it from watching other you know, watching people do it and then just kind of trial and error, like, well, we need to record demos for this record, or I need to have a good demo so I can write vocals or whatever. And it just kind of happened, you know, organically. And it was when we started out, I don't think you necessarily had to know how to do that stuff as an artist. But I think, you know, now it's like one goes with the other you almost can't survive yeah. at this point if you don't know how to produce i think yeah it seems like there's always somebody within the band or if it's a solo artist they know how to do at least some very basic stuff and i guess that's you know the intuitiveness of, of something like garage band makes it easy for people to make demos and things like that now so they have some understanding but i'd also imagine that you picking up a bunch of instruments over time has been really helpful to the the composing and the the writing and what you've gotten yourself into now 
Yeah, it's all just uh, accidentally figuring things out, I think. <laughs> was there also just like a a freedom to that to you to not really need anyone else around you to help you make those types of demos or to start producing more in-depthly in the future? Well, I think, you know, in the in the early days, I looked at Pro Tools as nothing more than like a digital tape machine. And it was like, okay, you know, it's like, where I'm going to record our bass player playing the bass part. I'm going to record the drummer playing his drum part and we'll get everybody playing their parts and then maybe I might fix a couple mistakes. And if I'm getting really, you know, I'm getting really creative, I might, eh, this is too long. Okay, let's just cut this part in half and whatever. But slowly then I learned that, you know, the the computer slash the studio is an instrument on its own and you can treat it you can get really creative with the technology and that sort of helped to lead to a lot of like the film composing stuff I do. A lot of that is, you know, like having a computer and using it as an instrument is a big part of that. So it's, it's sort of, but it started out really from, from the like live band approach to where we're just capturing mostly what you know what the band does and then kind of building on that yeah man then that early programming on emotion is dead part one even feels like like those are the first you know composing moments in some ways yeah it's weird like the whole like you know like the last song on that record you always say goodnight starts with like this you know this piano thing that I'm not a good piano player. I can play really um, basic piano stuff, but I programmed that with this tiny little screen and it was like, it's like literally, it's like four or five layers of piano happening at once. That's supposedly, I guess, probably sounds like a, a performance that one person would play, mm. but I would just like make it part by part and kind of just layer the parts together. And and same with Emotion is Dead part one. It was, it was okay, let's play this one, I'll play this one keyboard sound and then I'll add this other sound and then I'll start programming drums to it and kind of putting it together and then, you know, bring it to the band and like, let's say like, okay, let's add some, you know, let's add some little guitar flourishes here and let's do whatever extra things to add to it. But yeah, I didn't, I just remember there was it's like oh there's 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 sequencers in here so you can you can have 16 tracks playing inside the inside the keyboard at once so you could have a a synth bass and um a piano and two synthesizers and a drum machine all happening at once and it just felt like you know another way to be just another way to be creative and you know there weren't even that was like way before YouTube tutorials or wasn't YouTube then. So you just kind of sort of like faked your way through it and just tried to figure out how to make stuff. Hey everybody, just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by North 45 Pub, located in the Alphabet District of Northwest Portland. 
They've got a killer selection of Belgian beers and an extensive liquor wall with over 200 bottles. Muscles and Fritz are on the menu. Their cheeseburger is lights out, and they've always got some killer weekly specials as well. Aside from the menu items and beverages, they've got this awesome covered patio that is heated throughout the fall and winter with a bunch of big screens to watch all your favorite sports. And the best part is they have DJs playing tunes there every Tuesday night from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. and Sundays 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. So come through North 45 Pub for some tunes and some food. Let's get back to the episode. Was there a turning point or kind of pivotal moment for you when you decided that you were going to immerse a majority of your time into the composing side of things and TV and film? That just kind of happened over time gradually, and I still try to split my time half and half between artist stuff and you know and and film stuff. It really just depends on juggling jobs and you know juggling things when they come in. Um, but, you know, I, I stumbled onto film composing borderline by accident. I was, you know, some of the earliest music I loved as a kid really, really early on was film music. I was I was obsessed with John Williams' score to Superman when I was really young, and I just thought that was like the best music ever. But I didn't really necessarily, at that age, understand that some there was a person who sits in a room somewhere and writes that you know I don't, I don't know if what I thought but as time went on I, I got more and more interested in the idea of film composing and I remember I bought a book and it was like you know it was about film composing and I, I got this book and I read it and I was like yeah this is out of my league I can't do this this is not <laughs> something I'm talented enough to be able to do and it seems like a, such a competitive career and it's just so whatever I'm just a guy in a band and a few years later uh, a friend of mine who's a director asked me to um, score a movie for him he was like hey I have this movie it's really low budget uh, and I don't need much music in it and the music that's going to be in it is really minimal and I want you to score it and I was like I was like, man, I, I don't know how to score a movie. And he's like, no, this is going to be really easy. There's not going to be much to it. And it's just going to be super simple. And and it's not a big pressure because nobody's going to see this thing. It's just really small budget. It's no big deal. And he just kept he just kept trying to convince me to do it. And <laughs> finally, I asked a friend of mine, Ben Romans, who had just scored a movie recently, if he would come on and and work on it with me just because I didn't even know how to import video into Pro Tools and like sync it up to music. (laughs) I didn't even know how to do that. And I knew that he did. And, you know, fast forward, there's, there is, there ended up, he's correct. There ended up not being much music in the movie. The, The music that ended up being there is really, really simple, extremely simple. But he was wrong about the nobody seeing it part because the movie ended up coming out and it, was number one at the box office in um, like, I don't know, like a hundred countries. And it cost cost $100,000 to make and it made like $130 million. So it's still to this day, one of the most profitable movies by percentage of all time. I mean, last <laughs> I saw it might 
be number one. And so it's this movie called The Devil Inside. And it was like a found footage horror movie. And um, the director, William Brent Bell, is at this point one of my best friends. And we've, we're on our, uh, let me think, let me, let me count. Inside, we're about to start our sixth movie together, um, like right now. So, yeah, it just kind of organically came out of of me trying to say no to the first <laughs> thing he offered me, and you know there was this you know there's a huge huge steep learning curve in that though because it went from the first movie we did together was very minimal and didn't have much music and then the next movie we did was like an action horror movie with an absolute ton of music in it that and and the music was really involved and had lots of changes and lots of rhythms and lots of different lots of different vibes of music in it and so at that point I had to basically take myself to school and learn how to compose on a computer and learn how to Uh, just I had to learn about so much stuff and like kind of had to give myself a crash course on everything and just sort of force myself to be able to do it so it was just kind of like fake it till you make it yeah do you feel like there's something special about making music in that form where you're not just creating this music but you're creating a piece of music to match or meet this other piece of art that's already been created yeah, and that's the most important part is when you're a film composer, it's not about what you're it's not about your music. It's about there's a story and your job is to be a storyteller. Your job is to support a story and you know, cuz I could come up with this piece of music that I think is beautiful or that I think is really cool and if it doesn't tell the story that the filmmakers are trying to tell, at that exact moment, then I'm not doing my job. It doesn't matter how cool the piece of music might be. It doesn't matter that it might sound good on its own. It doesn't matter that it might match to the picture. It might look okay or it might be timed properly. If it's not telling the correct story and if it's not moving, if it's not moving what's happening on screen in the direction that it needs to go story-wise, then I'm then I'm not doing my job. So at the beginning coming from song perspective it took me a while to learn that and you know i'm still learning and it it it's something that it's such a completely different place to come from it, they're they're two like very different thought processes you have to be in because when you're you know you're writing a song it, it's standalone and it lives on its own and you're in control of what that, that story is and what that narrative is, you know, especially as like a lyricist, I'm, it's a lot, how do I, how do I say it? It's just more, it's self-contained, but, and it stands on its own, but, but when you're making something for film, you're making something that is only purpose is to, is to support the story. And so, it's you're yeah it's just coming from a completely different place and you just have to think about it differently and you have to discipline your mind to not get attached to things because it will inevitably be edited and changed and then Mm. something you did that you love will probably get cut 
or moved or changed or won't even show up and you'll go you, you might spend three days on a, on a big huge sequence in a movie and then when you get to the sound stage at the end for the final mix of the movie all the producers and the director and the sound mixers and everybody are sitting in there together and they might say all right well the score here is is competing with the sound design and we think the sound design in this part uh is is stronger and if we have to choose one or the other the the sound design tells the story better here so it's like well i just spent three days making this thing it was my favorite piece of music in the movie and now it's like well it's gone <laughs> it's no longer there and you have to be able to detach yourself from that and try not to have any feelings which is easier said than done sometimes it gets easier with each thing that i do but sometimes it's still hard because i came from the artist side first so i i get really attached to things but you have to you really have to detach yourself and and to realize that you're just part of a you're just one cog in a giant machine that that's creating something bigger yeah has it also changed your relationship or the way you think about writing your own music now and is there I don't know. Is there things you kind of have to strip away when you go into writing your own music because you have all of this composing experience now? Yeah, they do. One hand washes the other. There's definitely a, a, an influence from from both. I think much more about individual notes and the intervals between them and what story they're telling. That was not something that I ever thought of consciously when I was younger. You might think like, oh, I want to sing it this way, or we should play it this way because it makes it moody, or I should sing it this way because it feels more powerful. But when you when you get into composing for film, you realize that every single note choice you make between one note and the next, that interval between those notes tells a story. And so mm. you play a certain note after another note, and you're like, ooh, that rubs that's mysterious or you play another way you're like oh that's hopeful or you play a, a different interval and you're like huh that's tense and each one of those things uh, one little change of one note can completely change the entire feel of what's happening on screen and so now i'm just inherently a lot more conscious of note choices and so it's just something that it's really hard for me to turn that off when I'm yeah. working on songs. I, I just it's just something that I just think about more now. Is it nice for you to have some separation in those music endeavors so that there's not so much pressure being put upon one or putting pressure on your your own songwriting to generate money at this point? It's weird because I put a ridiculous amount of pressure on myself at all times. Un, un, unfortunately and it's not to like make anybody else happy really and it's not to like necessarily achieve anything it just I'm always pushing myself to um, want to do something that I that's like better or or more developed or in a different direction or exploring something that I haven't explored before or that the band hasn't explored before and I think you know the unique challenge with the Juliana theory right now is is how to combine the idea of moving forward with st still keeping the feeling and the heart and soul of what we did in the past but be able you know being able to 
put that through the lens of, you know, where we're at right now, interest wise and, and, you know, even like different instrument choices or, or whatever. But yeah, there, there is nice to have that separation because they're two, because they're two different disciplines. And sometimes I find it really fun to, I might be working on in this dark horror movie for a couple of weeks. And then like, I might just open up a different session on my computer and suddenly get all this, a bunch of ideas for song or songs because it's because it's like oh this is so different this is oh, i haven't been in this headspace and so it's exciting to come into the headspace of hey, i'm gonna write something poppy and upbeat that's kind of like major key and it just feels good so they do kind of work together in their own way um but i still do put more pressure on um songs than probably maybe that i should but it's it's all internal pressure really and would you say your most comfortable or favorite creative space is on the stage performing or in the studio writing? Um, I go back and forth on that, and it's usually whichever one I'm doing. And, and then I'm usually not in the mood to do the other one. So like every time <laughs> I think about, every time we have shows coming up and we're not yet playing them, I'm always in my head like, oh, man. I don't get to work. Like I, I don't get to write right now. And I, I have to go out and like have to worry about my voice being strong and it has to stay strong. So I don't, you know, I don't want to lose my voice on stage and I want to put on a good show. And, oh, I don't, and then within like three seconds of being on stage, I'm like, Oh dude, this is the best. God, how much I love this. Yes. Can we just tour for the next six months? So yeah, it's really it. it and then I'll be like, oh man, I don't want to go back to the studio. I don't have any ideas right now. And then, you know, I get in the studio and it might be like I'm rusty for a few hours and then suddenly stuff starts coming. So I think like for me, it's pretty, pretty even. I I love both equally. And how much does it mean to you, man, that you can not tour or play any Juliana Theory shows for years at a time, but when you choose to come together the fans are still showing up and invested in hearing this music it's crazy it's um it's something that we don't take lightly and we don't take for granted because especially coming from the place where the band was supposed to be a joke and it wasn't anything that we thought was going to last to be able to say it's now whoa this just hit me it's now 20 we're just about to hit 25 years from when we started um i never thought of that till right now because we started in 97 so to think that 25 years later there's people that will like you know send us dms or say really great things about our music impacted them or will come to the show and you know sing along the front row or whatever that's like that's mind-blowing to me so I, I, I think that's, it's crazy. And I never, ever would have expected that at the time. So yeah, it's, it's really wild. It's awesome. Yeah. What do you think has kept you and Josh together playing and in contact, whether it's, you know, just keeping that relationship together or, you know, these points where you want to play old music together or write new music together? Man, I think like, we had always been okay like we became friends in we became friends in high school in we had this class together 
called Guitar Lab, which is basically a class that met, I think it was maybe three times a week. And it's just this room with like 12 people in it playing guitar. And we were supposed to be learning this, this like stuff every week. And we, we weren't really, we were just basically hanging out, sitting next to each other, just like playing, you know, like playing fun little songs together. And we, and then he got me a job at the movie theater that he worked at. And we had so much fun together at the movie theater in the concession stand that they actually separated us. And we weren't allowed to work the same shifts because we, we like just had too much fun together. So, you know, Josh and I go back now for like, I mean, like it's, I don't know, 28 years, 29 years, something like that. And so we've been friends for so long and we, come from the same come from the same place and have you know similar upbringings in a lot of ways and there were times when after the band broke up where we didn't talk for a couple of years because you know I moved to California and I kind of was just like you know what like I was really burnt out on on band life and touring and we were just all kind of like figuring out what we what we wanted out of life and you know Josh had started a family and started having kids and you know, we we stayed in touch, but there were times where we we didn't talk as much. But in 2019, we had this. Somebody offered us to do this acoustic tour, and I had a lull between um, two movies, and I kind of said yes, but I again wasn't really like excited about it. And it ended up just ended up just being Josh and I, and we we didn't think that was going to be the case at first, but it ended up just being Josh and I. And we, you know, we went on like a 30 date tour of just the two of us, nobody else in a car the whole time, like touring in a, like an SUV. We never did anything like that. And beforehand I thought like, I don't know if this is going to be, is this going to be weird? Are me and Josh going to hate each other? Are we going to be bored? Are we going to have fun? Is it like, we have nobody else. There's no, like, you can't escape each other. There's like, no, there's no other bandmates. There's no crew. There's nobody. And man, like we had so much fun. We were just laughing and just had the best time. We never had an argument. We've, literally never had like even close to an argument or nothing and that was in 2019 and it just went so well that we just kind of kept we just kept doing stuff since then and that kind of same attitude is like continued like he finishes my sentences half the time and and the same like we usually have the same opinion on most things and we still haven't had an argument in in all the all this time so it's just like you know, we just we just get along and we just have fun, and so we're just trying to be creative and make the most of it. Yeah, what was it like re-exploring some of those older jams through the uh, recent Dream Away record? That was fun because that came from that came from doing the acoustic tour. We thought, well, we've never really we'd only played maybe three or four times acoustic ever during the bands like when we were originally before we broke up. We never really made a thing of playing acoustic. And when we did do it a couple of times, we ch didn't change the arrangements. We just played the exact same versions on acoustic and it always sounded bad. And so we thought, <laughs> well, if we're going to do an acoustic tour, we need to like really think about this, change the key, change the way we play it, maybe even change the chord progressions completely. Maybe this one upbeat song will make it more of like a ballad and then, and then vice versa on other things. And so we just kind of spent a lot of time figuring out how to make it work on one or two acoustic guitars. And when we did that tour, a bunch of people asked us every night if we were recording it. And we just kind of thought, oh, maybe we'll, maybe we will record this afterwards. And so we ended up going into the studio 
recorded the the stuff the way we did it on the tour and probably my film composer stuff got got way in the way but i just was like ah this is too minimal this is like there's not enough <laughs> happening here we already did it on tour so like if we're gonna do this let's just add to it and so next thing you know there's like mellotrons and and strings and woodwinds and you know pianos and electric pianos and all kinds of things because it just felt like you know that was the thing to do and if we were gonna reimagine the songs quote unquote we might as well reimagine them so yeah man and i think it's cool for the the folks that have been following your band for 20 plus years to kind of get to hear where the mindset is now and what the both of you have learned about making music since creating the original ideas for these songs totally i think it's i think it's fun and i don't i don't think there ever has to be just one version of a song you know there can be lots of versions i mean it's like you think of how many great cover songs there are that are better than the original and it's like that doesn't take away from the original that doesn't mean that one doesn't still exist and it's just like just have fun with it absolutely man well, this has been super rad, Brett. I'm very glad I had the opportunity to to get to chat with you. I feel like I could talk with you for another couple hours about all of the the stuff you're involved in, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but it's been so rad to just kind of get some insight on the experience of, you know, Juliana Theory starting and and what you all experience going through that and and into the film stuff i i think it's uh it's really inspiring for for me to you know know you as this dude who fronted this band but has uh you know to see how your career has evolved and kind of getting involved in different lanes of the the music industry is cool and uh, i think all all the work you're doing with the film composing is is very rad i was listening to you know, whatever was available on, on Spotify yesterday, just kind of listening to the, the film score while I was doing some computer work and even hearing it in that, in that form is, is very cool. So I appreciate you giving me some of your time and, and chatting it up with me. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. Yeah. You ever lace up those, those skates anymore, man? Um, I haven't as much as I want to. I did about a year and a half ago, I went, or no, it was okay. It was right before, right before COVID hit. I went, and I had my hockey skates from years ago, and you know, I try to go every couple of years, and I wore my skates, and dude, they like fell apart while I was skating because they're <laughs> so old that they like dry rotted, and I and I was like, these were like really expensive skates at the time because I was still, you know, playing hockey. And I just remember I was leaving the rink and I just threw them in the trash on the way out. And so I haven't skated since then because I was like, you know, I'm like, I can't rent skates. I, I can't wear somebody else's skates. That's like, that would be, I can't wear like those awful skates they have at the rink. So I was like, I just need to buy a pair of skates and then I need to start up because I have, I have a couple of buddies in LA that play that play on a regular basis that are always like, you need to come out and play. And I still have all my gear and stuff. So I, yeah, I need to, I need to get back out on the ice. It's been a couple of years. We're going to do it. We're going to do a special Dan Cable presents video segment. Perfect. Of, uh, Perfect. Brett Dieter getting back on the ice. <laughs>
Uh, awesome, dude. We end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show, which is, it's a program. It means absolutely nothing. It's just a goofy way to end the show. And the way that my grandfather says the, the news program, he always says program. So if we could get the, the Brett Dieter, it's a program. We can properly end this thing. Awesome. Hey, this is Brett Detter. It's a program. He nailed it, everybody. Woo! That's Brett Detter. The links will be in the episode notes so people can uh, keep up with Juliana Theory and keep up uh, with what you're doing. Outside of that, I want to play the episode out with one of my favorite tracks from Emotion is Dead, and that is Is Patient Still Waiting? And that is the Jelly Jams, and we will catch you on the flip side, Portland, Los Angeles, wherever you are listening from. want to give a big shout out to distro kid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast can't say thank you enough to distro kid for their support of this thing and make sure you go into the episode notes and find that distro kid link to receive 30 percent off your first year of membership with distro kid making their already affordable prices even cheaper for you so make sure you take advantage of that and the link is also in uh, the link in my instagram bio on the link tree so you can find it there as well big thanks to distro kid stay up stay tuned